Welcome to the Vulnerable Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Almeida. Each week, we'll share inspiring stories and tips on facing vulnerability and the lessons we can use to help us be able to find success and fulfillment in our own lives. With each episode, we hope to impact one listener. And if anything you've heard has impacted you, we'd appreciate you sharing it on social. Thank you for listening. Now let's get vulnerable. Brian Stevenson said, but our brokenness is also the source of our common humanity, the basis for our shared search for comfort, meaning, and healing. Our shared vulnerability and imperfection nurtures and sustains our capacity for compassion. This is episode 68 of the Vulnerable Podcast with Amanda Webster. Although she doesn't remember it, at around five years of age, her babysitter would lock her in a closet, and this would be her first experience of trauma. Then, during grade school, she would be severely bullied by her peers, which caused her to grow up with low self-esteem. In high school, in an effort to fit in, she would start drinking and doing drugs so that people would accept her. At 16 years old, she was sexually assaulted, and this would begin a spiral of drugs and alcohol to suppress any emotions or feelings she had. Then, in her early 20s, she would lose both her parents and continue to cope using drugs and medication. It all led to a point where she was about to take her own life, and an insane coincidence would bring her off the ledge. This would be the point where she decided to do something about her mindset and start working through her depression. Now she's helping people realize that they can overcome their depression and mental illness through their diet, exercise, and mindfulness practices. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to get vulnerable with Amanda Webster. Hey, Amanda, thank you for coming on the Vulnerable Podcast. It's great to have you here today. You were one of the many people that signed up through podcastguest.com. And I was just reviewing your bio before we got started here this morning. And, and I think this is uh, going to be a good one. So um, again, thank you for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. So the first question I ask every guest to get started is what is your definition of vulnerability? My definition of vulnerability is when you can really genuinely open up, be yourself, no censorship, no, no walking on eggshells. You can really just be who you are. Or I guess in Lucifer terms, if anybody watches the Netflix show, you can show your devil face. <laughs> I haven't watched it. I've heard good things, but I haven't watched it. But what I, def- <laughs> what I definitely like about what you had to say is, is just being your true self. I think that you know, vulnerability is one of the things that can lead you to figuring out who that is. Um, just simply because I think without vulnerability, we sign we sort of just stay in this box or, or stay in our comfort zone and we never really explore outside of it. So definitely like what you had to say there. Well, I will jump right outside that comfort zone nowadays. <laughs> Two years ago, no, but nowadays I will run around the comfort circle. <laughs> No, I, I can I can definitely relate. Uh, I think it was probably around two years ago for myself as well. So I can definitely relate to to not wanting to stay within that box. So looking back on your own life and, and go back as far as you want, you know, you can go back to when you were a child or, or wherever you want to start. Uh, when would you say would be your earliest memory of facing some sort of vulnerability or, or struggle in your own life? Well, you know, it's it's not exactly a memory because I don't vividly remember it. I think I kind of blocked it out uh, because it was it, was obviously traumatic but I do remember my parents talking about it I do remember the the falling out like the the trauma that resulted from it Uh, when I was five or six uh, the only babysitter I ever had locked me in a closet and and when my parents found out they 
pulled me out of there, got me out of there, and I never had a babysitter again after that. Fortunately, I had two parents that very much loved me, so I never had an issue with my home life, but I was very ostracized and bullied through school, starting in fourth or fifth grade is when it started getting uh, worse, and um, that was really hard because that's the age where you should be learning about yourself. You should be learning who you are and what you like. You should be making connections and making friends and having fun. And it was difficult because I couldn't really get a grasp for who I was because I was constantly trying to change it to, to suit other people. And that I think only got worse over the years. By my teen years, I was already dabbling in alcohol and drugs and stuff because I really, I wanted to fit in. I wanted to be liked. I wanted other people to accept me. And so if I got invited to a party, I was never part of the popular crowd. So when I got invited to a party, I was excited that somebody wanted me there. They wanted to talk to me, socialize with me because it was so rare. And so I kind of started dabbling in different things uh, just, I, I, I guess, for fun. It wasn't really all that fun, but <laughs> for fun. I told myself it was fun. And then when I was 16, I was sexually assaulted. And then the the drugs and stuff started becoming more of a coping mechanism because I couldn't really tell anyone I'd moved to a new town and I couldn't tell anybody there. I hadn't really made any friends per se, at least maybe close enough to drop that on. And all my other friends were a thousand miles away. And my dad would have killed the guy. And my mom, she did end up finding out later. And as I anticipated, she kind of blamed herself. And that's what I was trying to avoid is it wasn't her fault. And I didn't want her to feel like that. But that, I dropped out of school after that and really just kept trying to, to find my way. But at that point, I was kind of lost in that world of partying and alcohol and drugs and stuff. And that kind of became my life for a couple of years. And to be truthfully honest, I don't remember a whole lot from that time. When I came out of that haze, my dad ended up passing away. I was trying to get my life back together. I kind of realized... I was trying to get my life back together and my dad ended up passing away when I was 20 and then trying to deal with the grief of that and getting things together uh, financially and emotionally. My mom ended up passing away two years later when I was 22 and I just, that's when I started spiraling off and on. I got in an emotionally abusive relationship. I started using cocaine more regularly. I was drinking, I was smoking cigarettes, pretty much doing anything I could to cope. Um, I'd been diagnosed with clinical depression when I was younger, I think when the bullying started, and I saw therapists off and on. I'd been guinea pigged on pretty much every medication that hit the market because that's the solution, right? It's not, oh, she's being bullied. Let's work on her self-esteem. It's, oh, she's being bullied. Let's give her medication to numb it. So uh, I'd already been through that gamut. And when I got pregnant with my son in my later 20s when I got pregnant with my son that was kind of my my breaking point where I knew I needed to start getting things together and I did for a bit but I still struggled with the depression it was still very much there I ended up getting really bad untreated postpartum I separated from his father and then got in another relationship that wasn't particularly healthy and I was kind of surviving. That's, that's really the best my life had ever been. There were times where I didn't do the drugs or whatever, but I was still depressed and I was still very much struggling. I was usually still self-harming and my breaking point, my real thing that spiraled me completely out of control was 
when the lead singer of Linkin Park, uh, Chester Bennington, took his life in, in the summer of 2017 because that had been my only healthy coping mechanism since I was a teenager. And the night actually I was sexually assaulted and I felt alone and I couldn't talk to anyone. I turned, um, I turned on Hybrid Theory, their, their first uh, album, and I was listening to it in the shower the night it happened. So when he took his life, it was like that was my security blanket, my coping mechanism. This guy that gave me strength just lost his battle, and I started really heavily falling into the drugs. I overdosed. I just completely lost control. I felt like I had nothing. And I will say that I didn't use around my son. I want to make that clear. Uh, I, I split custody with his dad, so I had plenty of time to indulge in, in these things. But... Uh, when I when he was with me, I was I was still indulging in self harming and stuff, and I, I'd cover I cover my my um, wounds so he couldn't see them. But there was always something. And in October of 2018, I ended up on the ledge of a Canadian hotel room, looking down, just thinking, I hope this doesn't hurt because I don't want to hurt anymore. And I was thinking my son will be better off without me if I just jump. So I was a thousand miles away from home and everything I knew ready to end my life. Oh, just take a, I'm just taking a deep breath there because there's a lot there that I definitely want to touch on and get into and everything. Um, I first want to just go back a little bit and, and just sort of, you know, in that time uh, in when you were in grade school and you talked about bullying and everything like that, can you look back on that and think of anything that was able, like was helping you at that time to, to get through it? Um, you know, whether it was just the love of your parents or whether there was something else that you were doing just to, to sort of help you get through those, those rougher times during school. It was absolutely my parents. I, I turned a lot to my parents. I turned a lot to, uh, books and different TV shows and stuff. There's a lot of escapism going on because I didn't want to face my reality. So I figured I'd just be the fly on the wall of someone else's reality for a while. So I was always getting into some show. Actually, me and my dad got really into professional wrestling. So that was kind of my <laughs> addiction, I know. And it's so funny because I was the girly girl. This was the glitch in my girly girl personality. I was the, I had everything had to be pink and sparkly and girly. And my dad was a six foot two macho, you know, guy tattooed and everything. So it was kind of funny that, that we'd, we'd come across that, but it was something that we really enjoyed doing together. Um, so yeah, just the escapism of different things, be it the books or the movies or just spending time with my family. It's it's interesting to me because as you, when you said books, almost any every person that I've had on here who talks about some sort of trauma in their childhood, whether it be bullying or something going on with their family, it seems like books was the constant like escape. And and I and I kind of wonder. I, I think I said this on a podcast a few weeks ago. I kind of wonder if it's just because we're able to sort of escape into the someone else's story, whether it's fiction, whether it's a, a biography or nonfiction. I don't know what it is, but there's something you know about books that seems to be very helpful when people are going through those sort of times. And it's very different, I will say, because I did watch a lot of TV when I was growing up and stuff, and a lot got into a lot of TV shows and stuff. And I will say that books are so much different. It's so much different to get absorbed into a book than it is a show when you can almost put yourself in the shoes of the character. When, when you're reading, you can feel their struggle, their emotions, their pain. I don't feel that as much when I'm watching TV. 
uh, or movies. I mean, I don't watch a whole lot of, of things other than the aforementioned Lucifer. <laughs> <And laughs> my soap opera, my escapism of, of my adulthood is I watched the bold and beautiful. I, I, I care gave for an elderly woman for a while and she got me completely unapologetically <laughs> addicted to the bold and the beautiful. So that's kind of my little guilty pleasure, but yeah, there's, there's really something to be said about getting into, like you said, someone else's story and, there's such a variety because, you know, you can pick up a book and say, well, what can I change? What can I improve and read some kind of self-help book? Or you can read some fantasy book and get lost in another world. Or you can read of someone else's struggles and realize you're not alone. I mean, it's very versatile. It's a very versatile coping mechanism. No, for sure. It's, it's as you were saying, so the, some of the parts about like how you get lost in a book, it just reminded me of that, you know, how people say like, if you read a book, uh, don't watch the movie afterwards or whatever way it is, because I've done that a couple of times and the book was like 10 times better than the movie and it just ruined the movie for me. So I can definitely get what you mean in terms of like, you know, feeling like you're part of the story and, and visualizing and everything like that, because it, it's definitely happened to me. What what sort of, um, if there was one at least, what, what sort of strength did you discover in yourself at that time, like going through that bullying? Was there anything that like positive that you can remember that came out of it or was there anything that it brought out in you? Well, I mean, it really did, like I said before, strengthen my family bond. So I can look back and and say, you know, I had two parents that, that loved me. And I think that we really feel those bonds during hard times. Like when, when we struggle, when we go through grief or when we go through something, it really accentuates the bonds that we have with our friends or our family. So I definitely am so grateful for that. And I remember uh, just, just knowing that I had that and, and, and feeling that was, was definitely a plus and a strength. Cause I know a lot of people don't have that and they mm-hmm. don't, know how to um, have close relationships so I think that was a strength I also think it kind of gave me my personality now of I'm gonna prove you wrong I think that a, a large part of of my tell me I can't just so I can do it twice <laughs> <laughs> I think a large part of that came from you know being told all my life I wasn't good enough and I was this was literally most of my life through my peers it was I didn't have enough money. I didn't wear the right clothes. I was too fat. I didn't weigh enough. My boobs weren't big enough. There was always something. And as an adult, even in my later teens, I started kind of getting that complex of, I'll show you. I'll prove you wrong one day. I'll prove you wrong. And it's so funny every time. I think when I shot shot the Playboy back in my mid-20s, and I think that was my first real big haha moment where I started getting messages from people I literally think I talked in the hallway with twice <laughs> in, <laughs> in high school where they'd be like hi or something you know or, or they'd bump me and say sorry and that's that was our interaction and all of a sudden it's like hey you remember me we went to school together we used to be friends in school it's literally you never talked to me what do you how do you mean we were friends it's not like we were going hanging out afterward or anything but it was just so funny to watch how that played out um when I started getting magazines and stuff, I, I shot FHM too. And I got quite a few guys that were messaging me like, yeah, Hey, we went to high school together. Who the <laughs> hell are you? <laughs> were you even in my grade? Cause I don't think you were. I don't think I ever even met you. Did you see me in the yearbook or something? Is that how you found me? <laughs> 
it, it is quite interesting how people's you know opinions of you can change and and how you know like uh, at one point you know somebody would have totally ignored you or you would have been completely invisible to them and now it's like totally different and and i've sort of uh, you know not to con- compare because i can't compare whatsoever but you know i've had the same sort of thing happen over the last few years um, even in the more recently the last few months with this podcast starting where I've had people that didn't really talk to, didn't really know that well, reach out because this impacted them. So in a different way, I can, I can, but I can see how, you know, it's, it's interesting for, you know, that those people to sort of come back around full circle. And even when you, you know, probably didn't expect it. Um, so, so going back to when you talked about, you know, being in high school and, and starting to get invited to parties and all the things that came along with that, like, what what I'm trying to, to understand is like, you know, was it was it just peer pressure? Was it because I, I feel like I sort of in, in some ways I, I struggle with a similar thing in high school where I would just sort of change who I was every year, whether it was the way I dressed or the music I listened to to try and fit in. And so was that sort of the similar case for you where it was just this peer pressure or, or this effort to fit in that that sort of really took you down that that path? Absolutely. And I think that's really common nowadays. Well, that's been common for a long time amidst the youth because we really do want to be accepted by our peers. And that's such an important thing. It's so pushed, you know, in, in junior high and high school that if you're not accepted by the football team or the soccer team, whatever the hell it is nowadays that, <laughs> that they're going after, I don't know how many Instagram followers you have, like what's the thing of 2020 that, that you need. But um, I, I, I feel like there's kind of a, a stigma if you're not accepted and you you do start feeling bad about yourself. So yeah, it was absolutely just a desire to fit in. It was never like anybody was sitting there going, Hey, smoke this. You're not cool. If you don't smoke this, nobody was saying that. But when you get invited to a party, you want to make sure that you get invited to the next one. So you kind of have to fit in. And I, I had become kind of a chameleon that my, my clothes would change, the way I styled my hair would change, uh, even the way I talked would change depending on who I was with. And I felt like I had no real values. I mean, I, I, I did have boundaries. I wasn't sleeping around. But like I said, I didn't do meth. There were certain drugs that I, that I just wasn't going to touch. But for the most part, I, I just became kind of a chameleon and I'd be who people wanted me to be. And... Interestingly enough, I don't even think most of my friends knew that I listened to Linkin Park because in my area, that wasn't the cool thing to do because it was a, in both towns that I lived in, they were more small town conservative. So, you know, listening to the tattooed rock star wasn't what you should be doing. I'm like, all right, so y'all are going to go smoke meth, but me listening to, to Lincoln Park is, is not is cool. Like, what the hell is wrong with you? But I, I do remember, um, yeah, I, I listened to Lincoln Park. I listened to, I still listen to a lot of 90s music, even in the early 2000s, like NSYNC and Britney. And like every, I, I, looking back, everything that defined my personality, I felt like I had to, to keep you know, on the, on the inside, on the DL, yeah. I didn't talk about it. I didn't share it. Only my really close friends knew my real interests. And I didn't really have any of those in my new town. I had a couple back home and, um, we'd actually gone through the NSYNC obsession together. So obviously they knew that I was going to marry Justin Randall Timberlake, but <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Jessica Beale, but it was, it was my childhood fantasy, but yeah, I, on the outside, I just kind of became a chameleon that would go with whatever got me attention, whatever got me accepted. 
Yeah, so it was almost like a it was almost like a mask in a sense. Like you you had the real you as one person inside, and when you're away from everybody else, you you would indulge in in all the things that you enjoyed and and you had those values. But as soon as you sort of stepped into a crowd, you'd put on this persona or this mask to say, "No, I'm like you," because you wanted to fit in. Like I, I guess, like I was saying, it wasn't so much peer pressure; it was more just a an effort to fit in that that sort of started you down that path. Yeah, and it's interesting because I noticed in my adulthood, I don't, like I said, I don't watch a lot of TV or anything, but when I do get into a show, it's because I connect with that part of that character, like Lucifer. We are talking about Lucifer earlier, for example. The whole premise is that there's one person that makes him vulnerable, and he wants to believe that he can show his true face to her, right? So... That's all I really wanted growing up. That's all I ever really wanted was for somebody to be able to see who I really was, good, bad, and ugly, and still be able to love my double face. It was the same with Dexter. Dexter actually called it his dark passenger, and it's interesting because I always called mine my shadow. I have this dark part in me that she's the one that would tell me to self-harm. She's the one that would tell me to that, that I, I, I shouldn't be here anymore. There was that, that kind of voice, and it wasn't an actual voice, but it's kind of like your conscience, you know, when when you have different facets of yourself. I called mine my shadow. And when I started watching Dexter, I was like, oh, well, I'm not killing people. I definitely don't have that kind of shadow, <laughs> but I, or am I? Just kidding. <laughs> but um, how vulnerable can I be right now? Just kidding. But I, I really connected. There was a scene where he was in uh, like a AA or NA type meeting thing. And he gets up there and he starts talking about how he felt like there was this dark part inside of him that he he couldn't show anyone and the mask was just slipping. And just just scenes like that are so powerful to me. Or there was there was one, spoiler alert for, for Lucifer guys, um, but there was there was a scene in Lucifer, I think it was season three, where three or four, where he, he was talking to his therapist and he was like it just ended in him saying, why do I hate myself so much? And I have not sobbed so hard to a TV show in I don't even know how long, but I just started bawling because I connected with that so much. And I realized that that had been my issue. I hated myself. I hated myself because I didn't feel that I was good enough to be loved or accepted. I never got to date people in high school. I never got to be part of the popular crowd. I never, I didn't really actually get invited to much of anything until I dropped out of school. So like, that's exactly how I felt that I could never show my quote unquote devil face or my shadow. I felt like I always had to hide. I felt like I always had to pretend to be somebody I wasn't just to fit into society. And you know, actually, I think that that's almost what we're, we're perpetuating right now. We're, we're starting to create an us versus them mentality in our society. And I don't like it because that's what it leads to. It leads to people hating themselves because of the presidential candidate they support or because of the things, the values that they hold dear or, you know, the charities that they want to, to give to or whatever. I just feel like it's creating that and we really need to knock it off because it's, it's not good for the mental health crisis that's already festering in our society. Uh, it's, it's it's as you bring up like society and everything like that it, it definitely is interesting to me how you know we we don't take the time to get to know somebody and we just automatically sort of make these judgments it's even like when you were 
uh, you know, talking earlier, even in terms of when you're going to a therapist and it was like, instead of trying to figure out what was really going on, they just handed you some pills and said, take these and see if it'll fix the problem. Like there's, there's so many things that I think are, there's like simple fixes for, but yet we, we'd rather just, you know, uh, try and ignore them or, or find a, a faster way through them, I guess would be the best way to put it. You know, even when it comes to like society, like I said, instead of communicating with each other and really trying to figure out how to solve the problem, we just either spew hate or we use like social media or something like that to to sort of make it, um, again, easier to, to maybe hide behind or whatever the case might be. I don't I don't know if you understand where I'm getting at, but it's just interesting. Absolutely. Even like yeah, when you when you talked about earlier about like your parents not having a lot of money and like how going to school that caused issues like it's again it's it's one of those things where it's like it's weird to me that you know if your hair is not done in a certain way or if you don't wear certain clothes then you're not accepted and it's again it's not really who you are it's just things right so again it's just it's 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 really weird to me and 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 I, I kind of worry about the future as you were saying you know I don't know how it is today but I kind of worry in terms of like the next generation and you know my wife and I were watching something the other day and it was like a, I think it's just a show on Netflix and I don't remember which one but anyways the point is is that there was like these kids sitting around in high school and the the one person the it was I think a group of girls and one girl said to the other girl like so-and-so didn't like so-and-so's picture but then so-and-so liked this picture or did this or commented or whatever and I was just like I, I just we, we just had a daughter a few months ago and I literally turned to my wife and I said I hope I really hope that's not what it's like because it's it was just really weird to watch and see these kids like say you know everything's based on a like and a comment and, and that's how they know if so on so uh, this person likes that person or whatever it might be it just like I said it, it's weirded me out. <laughs> It actually super weirds me out too that we now, it used to be when, when I was growing up that, you know, it was all based on what jeans, did you wear Tommy Hilfiger jeans? Now it's, did your Instagram picture get enough likes? And that, that is really terrifying because it gives a very tangible way to be judged. It gives a very tangible way for people to, to say, am I good enough? And they're going to base their self-worth on a fudging Instagram photo. <laughs> <laughs> no, and then like you said, and in, in when, when you're talking about back in, in the times that you were in high school and everything, it was based on like a material thing, like a pair of jeans or something like that. And now it's just based on something that's completely, I would say even more superficial because we don't really know like, and I mean, we could go on a tangent down a path on this one, but it, it, we don't really know if that picture was altered or or how long it took. It could have been, you know photo number 100 that they actually posted and not the actual first one that they took and again i like i said there's a a rabbit hole that we could jump down here but i, I don't necessarily want to do that <laughs> you get yeah. what I'm saying. At, at the end of the day they could be buying likes they could be buying comments or you know if nothing that you see online is real i just i really want to to solidify that to our listeners nothing that you see these people are showing you their highlight reels that have been highly doctored. Everybody does it. We all do it. We throw on filters. We throw on whatever, you know, editing or whatever things to these pictures. And we talk about the highlights of our life. And sometimes we do share vulnerable moments. I know I shared a panic attack that I had on my Instagram because I wanted people to see that it's not always pretty, you know, like, yeah, I'm, I, I post for these magazines or I'm, I'm doing this fitness shoot or that fitness shoot. But at the end of the day, there are, we do still have struggles and that's important to see too, but you can't compare 
your behind the scenes to someone else's highlight reel. Yeah. And it, like you said, it goes, even goes back to what you're saying about your story is that there was always, there was like a behind the scenes person that you weren't showing to people and it's sort of the same thing, but now it's being done with social media rather than in person. Like it would have been, you know, 10, 15 or however many years ago. I don't even remember when social started. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, I want to now sort of, um, get back into, uh, you know, you were saying, so, you know, you went through high school, you went through the struggles with addiction, everything like that. And then I guess coming out of high school, uh, a couple of years out of high school, you started to straighten yourself out. And then uh, the passing of your parents uh, happened and then that sort of pushed you back into it. What, cause what I, I guess what I'm trying to understand is, you know, in high school, it was an effort to fit in. What caused you to return to it after the, was it just the grief and not being able to deal with it? Or was there something else um, that sort of led you down that path again? Well, nobody ever teaches us how to deal with, with hard emotions like grief or sadness. And again, if you try and talk to a professional, they'll just try and give you medication. I actually remember after my mom passed away and I could not work. I could not function. I could not do anything. I was doing good to get out of bed in the morning. I literally was rock bottom. And I went to a professional and told them, obviously, you know, my mom passed away. I, I don't know how to cope. And it was literally, here's some medication. And I said, I remember looking at the therapist and I said, my mom just effing died. I deserve to grieve. This is literally within weeks. I said, I deserve to grieve my mother. And I walked out of that therapist's office because I just, it, it angered me so badly that we live in a society where we're, we're not taught how to, how to grieve, how to go through, you know, different positive grief activities. We're not taught how to be happy. We're not taught how to be sad. We really don't know how to handle our emotions or to handle stress or traumatic events. Now, we, we, we know years of a bunch of wars. I mean, for a few years, then we forget them anyway. We don't learn life skills, you know? And I don't think that I, well, I know that I had not learned how to really be me in the real world. I was still living with my mom when she passed away because she was really struggling uh, mentally after losing my dad and it was two years almost the day later so she was still really struggling with losing him because they'd been together for over 20 years and yeah I just I had no idea what to do I had no idea how to deal with everything that was hitting me I just felt like a complete ball of static all the time it was just constant thoughts constant feelings constant emotions and I couldn't navigate my way through them. And I actually developed a panic disorder after losing her. I imagine just from the immense amounts of grief and stress and not knowing what to do with it. And I, I finally got a job next door, at a little smoke shop, which was interesting because I, I pretty much only got a job there because the manager had a crush on me and he uh, lived at the apartment complex I lived at. And I, I got a part-time job there. My, my mind could justify that because I'd become friends with this guy. So if I needed to call in or something, he wasn't going to throw a big fit. And it was right next door. So if I needed to go home and, you know, get, take a shower or get a drink or something, usually I could. And that made it really easy to get different things, to get different substances. So I ended up um, getting some, some, cocaine from one of my clients just because I knew that it well I felt like it would take the edge off I thought it would take the edge off of the grief I was feeling of what I was 
going through after losing my mom. I just didn't know how to be, even begin to process what the shock and the pain. I didn't know how to process it. So, you know, that's what they tell you. That's kind of what we're sold is that cocaine numbs you. I will tell you that it doesn't. <laughs> that's a lie. It does not. Uh, it might help in the moment, but the the side effects are just brutal. And the panic attacks that I developed from that were hell. But it gave me that one, that one instant, that one instant of relief was worth everything to me at the moment. Like it was literally worth my life just to have that one instant of not feeling that pain or at least not feeling it so intensely. Yeah. I, I mean, again, like I, I, I don't want to say I can relate cause I, I sort of hate using that word because it's, it's hard to, uh, you know, I don't want to compare anything like that, but I definitely understand in terms of, you know, I lost my grandfather a few years ago and I was very close with him and it was very sudden. And instead of trying to deal with the grief, I similarly just tried to jump into other things. One was trying to start a business um, and then there was other things like extracurricular activities. Mine was, my vice was marijuana. Um, so, and it was just sort of one of those things where I was just, I didn't want to deal with it. I didn't want to face the emotions. I didn't want to understand why it happened or what, what was going on. I just sort of wanted to ignore it um, up until the point where I finally had a conversation with somebody in my family and broke down and realized like, you know, that there was more um, to what was going on with his health and everything that I even understood, but I can relate in terms of the, in terms of just trying to find a way to block it out or find a way to ignore it, um, because it just seems easier than than to actually face it. Yeah. So you know, going into now, I guess you know, you said after that it was sort of from from after the passing of your parents, sort of the next things that happened after that were some abusive relationships and stuff like that you know again like was this was it the trauma from your past that sort of led you into those as well like was it something about your past that made you say you know like okay this person you know loves me um even though it may not have been true um but this person loves me so i'm gonna do whatever i have to do to to keep them around or whatever it might be you know i look back in retrospect, and I don't think that this person was a bad person. I don't even think that this was their personality, but I was in a state of immense, immense grief and struggling, like emotional struggling when I got into that relationship. And that's not the way to get into a relationship. I think I got with this person because I was desperately looking to fill the void that my mom left. You know, I was feeling empty. This was the only person I really had in the world. This is all I had. I had no siblings. My dad was gone. My few friends were a thousand miles away. And this was really, I just felt all I had in the world. So I was really trying to attach and connect to someone. And so I got with him literally right after my mom died. I mean, he lived in Arizona. And I lived in California and we had met on MSN Messenger, if that dates me. <laughs> and we connected on MySpace, if that dates me even more. And uh, he ended up coming out the day after my mom passed away. He drove, uh, he drove there to be with me. And, you know, he really was like the Prince Charming type. And I just think that it was a, a toxic, unhealthy situation that turned us both into toxic, unhealthy people. And I, I did stay. I will 100% own that I stayed because I was scared of being alone. I was scared of what that would be like to be in this you know, big bad world without my mom, without any support, completely and utterly on my own. And I continued 
not only staying with him, but every time I tried to leave, I'd end up kind of getting roped back in to the point of where I ended up chasing him to Arizona, where I am now. But I, I just, I, I wanted that acceptance. Yes, that, that definitely played into it. But I think it was more at that time in my life, I just wanted to not feel so empty and so terrified all the time. It was it was hell. It was literally what I would imagine hell to be like. It was, it was worse than physical torture. It was just psychological, absolute nightmare. It was literally everything that you would expect psychological torture to be. Um, when, when they, when they portray things like that in the movies, that's literally the types of things that I would imagine was probably the, the, the time between when my dad died and probably up to about two years or three years after my mom passed away was just absolute psychological torture. It's, it's, you know, it's interesting to me that you're able to sort of reflect on it now. And, and like the one, one thing that I, I mean, there's a lot that I took out of what you just said there, but the one thing that I took out of it was that you're able to reflect back on that and go, you know, it wasn't that person's fault. It wasn't necessarily your fault either. It was just the, everything that was going on created a certain toxicity. And I think that's really, uh, I don't know if the right way to say it, but it's, it's kind of big. Uh, what I'm trying to say is like, it's big of you or it's, it's, you know, it shows a certain amount of empathy that you must have gained over at some certain, some period in time over the last few years or whatever it might be. Because again, for you to sort of be able to reflect and say it, it wasn't their fault and, you know, it was the, the situation or whatever. It seems to me that that's, not something everybody would be able to do. No, it's, it was really hard to get to that point. And there's been several people in my life that I feel like I've had to really take a step back and look at the situation as, uh, as um, impartial as possible to like look at that person's situation. After my dad died, my mom and I went to Ohio because that's where her family was from. And she had a son from a previous marriage who was, was quite a bit older than me by a solid like decade and a half. Uh, she had him when she was very young. I think she was 17 and she was in her late thirties when she had me. Uh, and I was the only child to my parents, but this, this guy just absolutely held on to a childhood grudge because she was 17 when she had him and she clearly was not a, a really good parent and she had a lot of issues. So he ended up kicking me and my mom out on the street and we had no money. We were homeless. My dad had just died. And, you know, I, I, I realized after it actually didn't take me all too long, probably a few months, but I realized this person's hurting. Like this person was really hurting and what he did was wrong. And what he did was, was a product of, of what he was going through. Like he wanted, I guess, in some way revenge and he was afraid. But when you really stop to think about it, we all kind of have a part of our inner child. Like there's still a part of me that responds like that scared kid in the closet. There's still a part of me that's, that responds like that kid that is being bullied, wants to feel accepted. And unfortunately, if we don't deal with those things in the right way, you know, like he clearly did not, it's going to come out in ways like that. And I feel like the more I can be empathetic with other people, ironically, the more I can take a step away because if I'm not empathetic with them, then I'm going to sit there and try and change their mind. You know, like I'm going to sit there and try to tell my ex, well, you are wrong and you need to see that you were wrong. You need to see what a bad person you were and you need to see everything you did wrong. But once I can accept my part in it, I don't feel the need to do that anymore. And it, it's actually incredibly liberating 
for me to say, hey, this happened. Here's what I learned from it. We both had a part to play in it. And let me let me be clear that there are many situations that that does not apply to. If, if you're in a situation where you're being abused or something, please leave it. It's not your fault. Uh, even if it is emotional abuse, it's not your fault. Uh, that person probably just has some things that they need to work on, clearly, like I was just explaining. Um, but once you can see that, you know, you're choosing to be there one way or another, and this something usually has, has created that toxicity, whether it's one or both people, you can kind of have more empathy and, and walk away from it if you need to. Or at least, at the very least, you know, have... When, when I walked away, like, like I said, it took me a while, but I, I did end up having understanding and it was really freeing for me. Again, it's uh, kudos to you for being able to, to, to figure that out, whether it took years or months or however long it took, it's still really great that you were able to figure that out. Because again, I think a lot of people would um, either stay in the situation or it would have, you know, effects on them that, that not, might not be, I don't want to say reversible because I don't think that it's necessarily that you reversed anything. It's just more that you figured out how to work through it and, and how to sort of find the lesson in it. Um, sort of what this whole podcast is about is it's going through the vulnerable situations, the vulnerable moments, and then figuring out sort of what, how they can help you or, or what they, what they may have taught you at, at some point. The, the last thing that I want to touch on in terms of that story is, you know, you did mention, you know, you were in Canada, you were, you know, sort of ready to, to take your life and everything like, and, and I don't know how much you want to get into it, but like, what, what made you decide not to like, what, what was it that, that pulled you back? What was it that made you decide to go from that to where you're at now? Well, ironically, the thing that pulled me down was the cleaning crew that I didn't even know existed, turned on their music. I was th- I've been there three days. I had literally not seen a single freaking person. And when you got to the hotel, you had to call the concierge to let you in. They, they didn't just sit at a desk like most do. So I didn't even know there was a cleaning crew. But in that exact moment while I was standing on that ledge, the cleaning crew turned on their stereo and it was Lincoln Park. It was Breaking the Habit by Lincoln Park. And I just freaked out. I just, I thought I was hallucinating at first. I thought it was, oh, this is, you know, my life playing before me and I get my own soundtrack and it's Lincoln Park. Of course it is. And I, I stepped down because I had to see that it was real. I had to go look and see that it was real. And I, I popped my head out. I had a brief little French interaction with the cleaning crew just to make sure they were real life human beings and I wasn't hallucinating them. And after that, I guess that was really what what made me realize that I'd never been alone, whether, you know, I I didn't, I don't really believe in in God per se. I'm not a theist. I'm not a religious person, but I felt in that moment, like I was meant to be here. Like there was something greater than me, whether it was my parents or Chester or God or whatever, there was something. And I just felt this overwhelming sense of, of peace. I mean, ironically, it was peace kind of in a storm because I, I lost my shit. I curled up on the floor of that hotel room and sobbed for hours. But that was probably the most powerful part of my story because I finally started to process. I finally started to process the childhood trauma. I finally started to process the, the sexual assault, the losing my parents, all of these things that I hadn't known how to process. I just started letting out and that was sobbing that was punching a pillow that was just you know burying my head in the pillow and screaming that was just completely falling apart and not judging myself for it 
because believe me, I'd cried many times, but there's, there's a big difference between crying because you're desperate and crying to kind of just let out your emotions. And I can't really explain how to facilitate that difference, but I'd never really just let myself go. And once I let myself go, then I could have, I, I had a little bit more clarity that I just realized I want to be happy. And I went back home um, the next day. I went back home and I ended up, it was the next day, I ended up going to a mental health professional. And I said, look, this is what happened. And I'm tired of just being told that I should take medication. And I'm tired of being told that I'm never going to be happy because I literally had been told that I had this SMI. I had a serious mental illness. I've been diagnosed in my 20s. So I've been diagnosed with a serious mental illness. I was told it was lifelong. And I looked at her and I said, I'm going to be happy. And she looked at me and said, well, with your diagnosis, that's not possible. And that was my Elle Woods in the bunny costume moment where I said, you watch me. <laughs> and I, it, the thing that scared me the most about that interaction, though, is what if I hadn't been that person that had been bullied that had that I'm going to prove you wrong personality? What if she told that to a person that thought, oh, great, well, now I'm never going to be happy. What's the point? And they left her office and took their life because they felt there was no point. So I was told by a mental health professional that I cannot get decertified as having a serious mental illness. That's not something that happens. I got decertified as having a serious mental illness because I had a burning desire to not only prove them wrong, but to be genuinely, truly happy, not just complacent. I mean, nobody grows up saying, I want to live complacently ever after. That doesn't sound very pretty, does it? <laughs> it just doesn't sound fun or exciting. So that was really my, my, my power moment, my lesson. And for uh, clarity, just so, so people understand. So when I was doing... Uh, I had to do these year yearly evaluations, right, for, uh, for anxiety and depression. Uh, it's called a DAS evaluation, which measures your depression, anxiety, stress. So in November of 2018, this was the month after, about a month after the Canada incident, my anxiety was at a 16 and my depression was at a 20. Now, May of this year, in the middle of a global pandemic, mind you, my anxiety was at a two and my depression was at a three. So wow. it dramatically dropped. And when I did this test, it was done by a, a different uh, professional who said, whatever you're doing, keep doing it. Um, and, and question, why on earth did you ever get diagnosed as an SMI? And I responded, because at one time I had one, <laughs> at one time I merited that uh, diagnosis, but I just, I don't have the symptoms of it anymore. And I did end up getting decertified because I just didn't have the, I didn't meet the criteria for it anymore. And I was told that was impossible and I believed it. So, yeah. So chills first off like twice there once when you said that the Lincoln Park song came on because I, I'm similar to you in terms of like, I'm not big into religion, at least organized religion, everything like that. I do believe, you know, there's definitely a power out there, whether you want to call it the universe or whatever you want to call it. 
but the fact that that happened seems to me like there, there was definitely some sort of sign. I, I, I don't, I, I mean, I haven't stayed at a lot of hotels, but I can't remember a time where, you know, I heard the hotel cleaning crew playing Lincoln park and for that to happen and sort of just for that moment to happen uh, again, it, the, to me, there, there's some sort of sign there and I'm glad that it happened because obviously if it hadn't, you may not be on this episode right now, but that, that just sort of gave me chills when you said that, because again, I, I, I don't believe in coincidences. I, I don't think things happen by coincidence because it just, there's too many things that have happened to me over the last few years. And I'm sure you might be able to relate where it just doesn't make sense that it would just be a coincidence. Like there, there's gotta be a reason for it. What it is, we may never know, but, but nonetheless, um, I just don't believe in coincidences. And then the second time is when you sort of said there that you went from, you know, I think it was a 20 and it was another, I, I don't remember what the other number was, but they were both really high numbers. And then down to like almost, you know, nothing like down to almost zero in a matter of, you know, months or whatever it was there. I, I, that just seems to me like really powerful because there's a lot of people that, you know, even in my own life and people that I know, who struggle with things like depression and are either on medication or just don't believe there's a way out of it. And for you to sort of, I don't know what you did and I, and I hope you should, you'll share it in some shape or form, but you know, for you to be able to do that, even after somebody told you you couldn't, and I know part of that's probably your personality, but nonetheless, you know, that's a pretty extreme sort of from, like I said, from the highest end to, to the lowest end in that matter of time is pretty incredible. Yeah, and let me just be clear that I consistently do take the DAS evaluation. And as a matter of fact, uh, I, I have the DAS evaluation on my website as part of my course, because what I did was I kind of took all the steps that I took to get between those two points and turned it into an online course. Because like I said, we're never taught how to be happy. You know, we're never taught how to deal with anxiety, stress, what we need to be doing in our lives to really have the best possible mental health. So I tell people that if you go through that course, if you go through the happiness boost course and you do not improve by at least three points in your anxiety and depression, I will give you your money back because I fully believe that you will improve, that you will boost your happiness, that you can find healing without, maybe some people do need medications. I did not uh, utilize medication, but with or without medication, you can live happily ever after. You can be happy. You can get out of bed in the morning and be excited for the day and not just going, oh shit, not this again. Because I will tell you, I did that every morning for years and years and years. I got out of bed and went, oh my God, not this again. And now I get out of bed and I'm like, cool. What can I do today? What adventure can I have? What can I, uh, not even what can I accomplish, but sometimes it's just, how can I enjoy this day? Even if it's just sitting outside on my roof reading right now, I'm reading Jim Carrey's uh, autobiography, which is really weird, but it's, it's Jim Carrey and it's kind of cool, <laughs> but maybe it's just walking barefoot outside, but no matter what it is, whether it's Monday, Tuesday, Friday, Saturday, whatever, it doesn't matter what day of the week it is. I'm excited to get up. And yes, sometimes I have struggles like everybody else. I, I, I want to be really clear about that, that I feel like we're really unfair to ourselves. And we think that if we struggle, if we have a panic attack, or if we have a hard day, or if we feel sad, that it means, oh, well, I'm not really happy, or I didn't really improve, or I didn't really get better, or I'm not really healing. Okay, you're human. You're not meant to be happy all the time. And I look at it, I, I explain this uh, in the course, but I look at it like a spectrum. Happiness is a spectrum and you want the base point 
to be on the happier side of neutral. Mine used to be way down below. So when I was walking the dog or I was making food or I was doing a neutral task, I still was having suicidal ideation. I was still wishing that I was not here or I was thinking about what do I do to fix myself? It was constant negative rumination, constant depression. And now when I am doing a neutral task, I'm on the happier side. And sometimes I do drop down below because again, I'm human, you know, and like last year I lost my, my dog and I'd had her for 15 years and she meant so much to me and she'd been there, you know, through all the things that we've talked about, my dog had been there through and uh, at least all the things through my late teens and adult life. And I got sad because that's the human thing to do when something tragic happens like that. But I was able to know that when I was going through that sadness, that I was going to come out on the other side. I knew that I'd get better. I knew that I'd, I'd be happy again. When you're in depression, you don't know that. When you're in that dark place in your mind, you don't know that. So yeah, I really just took the time to sit down and analyze what were the things that I did. And I realized the mistake I'd made all along, and I, I bet you could, I, I know you're going to say that you can relate to this, and I give you permission to say that you relate to this, <laughs> because I thought when I was on that ledge, I remember thinking, I've done everything. I've done everything I can do, and I'm still here and hopeless and depressed and miserable, and I hate this world, and I hate my life, and I'm done. I'm in too much pain, and I can't get out of it, and I remember like really going back and kind of listing off all the things I'd done. Like I'd done the yoga, I'd read the self-help books, I'd ate the salad or eaten the salads. You know, I, I tried to work out, I tried to do all these things, but I did them all in isolation first and foremost because you, 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 you jump from one thing to another, right? One thing doesn't work, doesn't help, doesn't quote unquote fix you, you just jump to the next one. So I was doing things very inconsistently, just jumping from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next, and never really giving them a chance. And two... I wasn't doing them like together. I wasn't doing them together and I wasn't doing them consistently. And I finally pinpointed the five puzzle pieces that I really had to put together in order to really be as high as I could possibly be on my own personal happiness spectrum. Now all of our spectrums look different, but for my personal happiness spectrum to be as high as I could possibly be, these are the five things that pretty much everybody can do to move higher on their personal happiness spectrum. So that is what um, the Happiness Boost course was all about and why I, why I launched that was because people kept asking me, well, what did you do to get from point A to point B? What did you do? And to be frankly honest, I just got tired of answering that question. So I said, here, here is what I did. Like literally step by step, here is what I did and the changes I made and um, the, the skills and stuff I utilized because I feel like I became kind of bitter that I'd never learned any real skills to, to utilize in my day-to-day -day life. And once I started learning those, I kind of compiled them all. Um, I compiled my toolbox and stuff as, as one of the modules so people can, can learn that, can explore that, can build their own toolbox, their own skill set based on, you know, different things. And that's just, that was just so powerful. And I've, I've had such great, feedback from other people that have been able to drop their, their DAS evaluation, like their DAS scores pretty drastically. And that's just so amazing because to me, I felt like I could be someone's Chester. And when I get 
messages or calls or emails, you know, saying I was, I had a, there was one girl that said I had a gun to my head and I was done. And this was kind of my last resort to just, why not give it a chance? And I really related to that because when I came down and I said, I want to be happy, I told myself, I'm going to give myself one year. I'm going to give myself one year to give this everything I have. And if at the end of that year, I still feel this, this bad, I'm going to jump ever. I'm going to, I'm going to end it. I'm going to find a way to end it. And to know that I was someone's Chester, that I was able to do that for someone else. Like I, you can't see me because we turned our cameras off, but I, I, I get tears in my eyes when I think about that, that I, I helped someone get out of that dark place. I can, I can only imagine that, you know, how uh, the, the many years that you sort of face different types of trauma and, and different issues in your life for you to now come to a point where you're able to serve others. I can only imagine how great that, that must feel. I mean, I've, I've heard over and over again that true happiness is found in the service of others. And I think you're giving us a great example right now in terms of sharing the story that you just shared and, and what you're doing right now for a living. Um, the other thing that um, that came to mind when you were when you were talking about you know uh, you know whether it's being up on your roof reading or going for a walk or whatever it might be it seems like you've you've found you you've been able to stay a lot more present in your life and and I think the reason I want to bring that up is I think it's a, it's something that if we all practice a little bit more we'd all find a little more happiness and a little more um, ease in our lives because I think we're all very and you know, caught up in whatever happened in the past or what we think is going to happen in the future. And we don't spend enough time right now where, you know, just living our lives. I'm actually really glad you brought that up because I, I like everyone to be able to take that first step to boosting their happiness and to, to living their own personal happily ever after. And the first step is, you're right, it's mindfulness, it's focus. And I have a free workbook on my website that you can download, uh, amandawebsterhealth.com, that's how to improve your happiness or how to improve your focus and boost your happiness. And it gives you real, real solutions to be able to learn how to focus, how to get back to the basics, how to get back to yourself. And that was absolutely crucial for me because when we're depressed, what do we do? We sit there and we scroll Instagram. We sit there and we start having all of these things to boost our dopamine to to get hits of dopamine we start doing all of these things to distract ourselves and all we're really doing is distracting ourselves from our own happiness we're distracting ourselves from the things we could be doing to improve our lives and our happiness and i think that's the first step and i want everybody to be able to take that first step so that workbook is absolutely free uh, on my website just so you can have that first boost on your happiness spectrum Awesome. Well, I'll definitely make sure that I put some of that in the, the, the show notes and, and we'll get to a bunch of that promotion in a, in a couple of minutes here. I have a few more questions left, but um, you know, one, one thing I, 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 I would like to get an idea of, and, and I don't know if you can put it into sort of a, a statement or whatever, but um, if you can look at everything that, that sort of happened over all those years before you got to the point that you're at now, what kind of toll do you, would you say that took on you? Like whether it's emotionally or, or physically or whatever it might be, like what was the toll that took on you? When I was going through the dark times, you mean? Yeah, basically, yeah, like, like the, all those years. It was exhausting, first and foremost. I constantly felt exhausted. There was just, 
it feels like there's a heavy weight on you all the time. And the, the Lincoln Park song Heavy actually just broke my heart because it, it showed, you know, that Chester was feeling the same way in many ways, but it just felt like this constant heaviness on me that I, I couldn't, I couldn't ever take off. Like it's imagine wearing like a weighted vest all the time. It makes it hard to breathe after a while. Your shoulders start to hurt. It is a very physical thing. It does become very, very physical. I started having panic attacks and panic attacks will often mimic the symptoms of a heart attack. So I'd have chest pain. I'd start having the tingling uh, in the extremities and stuff. So there was, there was a lot of physical going on there. It was very hard to eat. I had digestive issues. I did eat. I, I'd go from the extreme of not eating a lot to binge eating. I mean, there was never a time where I wasn't eating or I was starving myself or anything, but there, there were definitely times where I just kind of bird pick a little bit at a meal. And then the next meal I'd eat way more than I should have probably a couple days worth of calories, but, uh, the, the, the appetite fluctuated a lot. The emotions, I guess the best way I could describe my mind. Well, there's two ways really. One is that those bullies that I dealt with when I was growing up, those bullies that would tell me I wasn't good enough and that would sometimes get physically, you know, abusive. I had one of those in my head all the time. I had this voice in my head constantly telling me I wasn't good enough, constantly telling me I should hurt myself, constantly telling me that I was a failure, that I was a disappointment, that nothing I could ever do would fix it. That was constantly, I had this bully constantly in my head. And there was a lot of static. So it was kind of like there was this bully that was constantly there and that chatter is either in the forefront of my mind or it's in the back of my mind, but it's always there. But then there's all these other channels going in my mind. And some of them are in like Korean, Japanese, I don't even know some language I don't speak. Some of them are in static. Some of them are in, oh, well, maybe we do better. Some of them are in, we need to listen to instincts. Some of the, it was just so random all the time, but there was always all these channels going and it just led to absolute burnout. My adrenals were shot. I, I had to um, kind of work through healing my adrenals because my adrenals were just shot, which obviously killed my, my energy levels amidst uh, other issues that I've been having. But yeah, that's, that's pretty much the description of, of what it's like to be in the head and body of someone that's, that's rock bottom clinically depressed. And of course, you know, when you're, when you're self-harming or you're utilizing some kind of substance, it turns that off for maybe even a second, but then it'll come flooding all right back in, you know, uh, uh, later. And it, it hits so hard that then I'd have more panic attacks because I'd, I'd, I'd do the coke or whatever. And then when I was coming down, the panic attacks were even more intense because obviously I'd, 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 Put these substances in my body and i was always very sensitive to substances anyway it's one of the reasons i couldn't take the medication uh, they caused even worsened panic attacks and suicidal ideation even if they gave me the kids dose i never had a medication that worked in any way positively for me and they put me on <laughs> dozens over the years but um yeah it's it's like i said before it's absolute torture it, it sounds sort of like that um 
there's like a saying of like about, about sort of running on a hamster wheel. And it sounds like that's what was going on for all that time was that you were just constantly on this hamster wheel that was never stopping it, whether it was the thoughts or something else that was constantly going on. There was just something that wouldn't give up. And, and, you know, it just, yeah, I can only imagine sort of the insanity that, that that might cause, but on the flip side of things, like how would you say all of it helped you with get, get to where you're at now with, with, with what you're doing with your programs, with helping other people, like, if you can reflect on everything, how would you say it all helped you get here? Well, number one, I have empathy for struggles. And I think that that is something that's really lacking in our society is people Mm -hmm. don't understand and they might be super well-meaning. Believe me, they're super well-meaning, but people don't understand how to handle somebody that has anxiety and depression. People don't understand how to approach someone, how to talk to them, what to say and what not to say. And I, I feel like I do have a much better understanding of that. And I'm glad that I I always wanted to help the world. I I knew that from a very young age. By the time I was four or five, I was the one that was out there saving frogs or something in in the woods. Like I I was always doing something. I always had that very huge drive to make a difference in the world. And I just never really knew how. I never knew my, my place, I guess. I never felt like in Lincoln Park terms, I had somewhere I belong. I never felt like I had somewhere I belong. And now, feeling like I could turn my tragic backstory into kind of a superhero story where I can help other people and I can help them change their lives and I can help them see that they've been lied to and that it it does get better. It can get better. And I can be somebody's Chester and not have to go through, you know, not have to have the same tragic ending that he had, that I can be that for someone while healing myself, while having healed myself is the most incredible feeling ever. It's just, it's, it's, I can't even describe, I'm still struggling sometimes to describe what happiness feels like because, you know, I was without it for so long, but now I'm like, oh, I'm having these tingly sensations in my tummy and it's awesome. And I feel like I describe it like a fourth grader. (laughs) (laughs) It does. It it, it feels like, like when, when Pac-Man gets his little, his little pills and he turns into the invincible guy that can beat the ghosts and that can do everything. That's what it feels like. I feel invincible i feel like i can literally do anything and the the things that i've accomplished that people told me i never would i mean every everything that i went through i think was to give me that screw you i'm gonna do it anyway personality which (laughs) not only i mean we already talked about what that did for me in terms of you know getting this drive to help other people and stuff and getting that drive to to heal myself when the therapist told me I couldn't, but it also gave me a drive to fully live my life. I was told because I was a single mom at the time, I was told, you know, you can't travel. You don't have a good job. You have your child. You should be spending all your time and energy and everything on them and all your money and everything on them. And I was told, you know, that I I wouldn't be able to, I wouldn't be able to get the money to, I just, you know, I didn't make enough with my, with my, my business that I had created for myself because I had also done a dog boarding. Uh, business that I'd created. And I was just, oh, you're never going to be able to do that. So in 2015, I went to London, Paris, Rome, Iceland, Mexico, a 10-day trip with my son through California. And then I threw the middle finger at all the people that told me I couldn't. (laughs) (laughs) And I met all of these people um, that, that were just such cool, important parts of my life in some way or another, or maybe it was just cool nostalgia. I did get to go. I met every member of NSYNC, so that was super cool. I met Mike Shinoda of Lincoln Park and he was actually meeting him was the last day 
that I, that was when I, I kind of got the, the motivation to stop self-harming and stop um, utilizing substances. So meeting him was my sobriety date uh, for cocaine and self-harm. So it was pretty awesome. Uh, but I just got to do all these different things and that it made, it made life worth, worth living in so many ways. And it just, it showed me that there's so much more on the other side of these struggles. No, uh, d- definitely a, a great way of sort of bringing it all together. And, and, and like you said there at the end, there's, there's definitely some power in the struggles and there, there's definitely something that we can learn from it. Like I said, that's sort of the point of, of this entire podcast. So a couple more questions. Uh, would you say that at this point that you found success and fulfillment in your life or that you're still on a journey towards it? I think it's always a journey, right? I mean, there's always one more thing we can do, one more place we can go, one more person we can help. But I feel that if right now nothing new happened, if I literally died right now, I would be happy. I would know that my son's on a good path and I have been a great mother and I, I've, you know, set things up for him for success and he knows how much I love him. I have success in my business. I've had success obviously with myself. Like I've achieved more in the last couple of years. I've, I've achieved more in the last five years than most people will in their lifetimes. And that's just, you know, personally, with with the depression stuff obviously in the last couple of years but also just with having adventures and living and helping and making my impact in the world so yeah I think that if I die right now I've made my mark and I hope my book still gets published if I die right now (laughs) (laughs) Uh, it's going to be in that process in the next few months so I'm excited but um, yeah I think that that I could genuinely say that I found, I found that place that I belong and I found that success that I was looking for. And it might not look like somebody else's success. I don't really care about having $40,000 months or whatever the, the buzzwords are these days for the coaches that are coaching <laughs> coaches on how to coach coaches. Do you realize that that's what a lot of it is now? Is every yeah. time you get online, it's, Hey, I'm going to coach you on how to coach people to coach people. Yeah. Okay. And, and you're going to make $50,000 a month doing it. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about, but these are rabbit holes that uh, that I that we could spend another you know 30 minutes on. But I, I definitely understand where you're coming from, and I'm I'm glad again that you've you've sort of found that area, that point of fulfillment in your life. That that like you said, there's still a journey, there's still things to happen, but at this moment, you know, you you've you've found what you need, and and you've defined it for yourself, which is also important because I think, like you're saying, with the forty thousand dollar months, these are things that other people define as success that then get sort of put onto us, and, and it may not mean the same thing to us that it does to them. So definitely understand where you're coming from. So if you can look at you know, if, if you, somebody were listening back to this, there's tons of sort of lessons and things that they can learn from it, tons of takeaways. But if you give our, our listeners three important lessons, three things that could help them with their struggles uh, that they're going through from your, from your journey, what would you say those three lessons would be? Well, I think if you're going to let other people define you and tell you who you should be, what you should wear, what you should listen to. You're never going to find happiness because first and foremost, those things are arbitrary and they're going to change. They're going to change with the times. They're going to change between people. And you can't let other people tell you who you are. And I actually think one of my favorite, um, 
one of my favorite Chester quotes was, you can't be afraid of people willing to hurt you because if you fear life, then you'll never live. And I think that would probably be my second point is you can't go around fearing everything and everyone around you. And that's a really important thing right now because we're kind of being inundated with a lot of fear mm -hmm. through like politics and stuff, through the news, through social media, but you can't live life being afraid. You can't live life being afraid of whether or not your partner's going to cheat on you or your best friend's going to betray you or whoever you don't want to win is going to win this, this election. You know, you can't live your life being terrified all the time. You have to really check into to your own little world. And I'm not saying don't reach out, like don't be part of the bigger world, but you really have to sit down and be secure in who you are, figure out who you are, what you want, and live that truth. Because, yeah, people are gonna not like you. People don't like, like the most, the most famous people. Adriana Lima, one of the most well-paid, beautiful like models in the world has been cheated on. Jennifer Aniston, who's one of like the most successful actresses, has been dumped. You know, like Steve yeah. Jobs and a lot of these, these uh, more well-known entrepreneurs, they were rejected. Their ideas were rejected. They were the rejects in school. It doesn't freaking matter. Find out who you are and your, your real tribe, your real pack will come to you. They'll find you. And it doesn't matter if you're accepted by a society because believe me that's actually exhausting anyway to have everyone like you because then you kind of have to you know connect with all these people all the time that'd be exhausting i don't want 500 friends just give me a handful of close ones that, that you know really resonate with what i what i believe in and what i like want to be around because sure i guess you can make all these people like you but then you never get to enjoy what you want to enjoy so really be who you are don't be afraid and hmm, what's my third one? No, this is, this is my dad. Actually, this is my, one of my dad's last things that he told me is don't give up hope because you never know what will happen tomorrow. And you have an influence on that. You have way more of an influence on that than, than your mind might, might be telling you right now. And if you're willing to do a little work, it does get better. No, strong points. And, and I mean, the second one that you made about, um, you know, it, it sort of, I guess it almost sounds like it was two points, but I get where you're going with it. But in terms of like not living in fear, we talked about that at the beginning of, of sort of going outside your comfort zone, but also how you mentioned there about, you know, uh, having, you know, the, the close friends, like the, the few close friends, I think that having that circle is, is really, really important in life because, you know, like you're saying, you could have 500 friends or think that you have 500 friends, but um, at the end of the day, there's only a few of them that are actually going to be there for you when you need them. And, and I think that that's a really um, important thing and, and it will help you get through that fear, or get through those tough times. So 100% agree with, with all your points there. So the last thing, um, like I said, I, I want to give you an opportunity to just sort of promote yourself, uh, let people know what you've got going on, anything, where to find you on social, whatever it might be. So the floor is yours. Go ahead. I already kind of did that, so I won't spend too much time. You can go to amandawebsterhealth.com. Make sure you get that How to Improve Your Focus and Boost Your Happiness uh, free workbook so that you can take the first step uh, to boosting your own happiness to going higher on your happiness spectrum. I also have a YouTube channel, youtube.com slash amandawebsterhealth, where I interview different celebrities about mental health issues to break that stigma, just to get that conversation going. Uh, there's Billy Bob Thornton. Uh, Eric Bischoff, Diamond Dallas Page. I have a couple of other bigger name actors coming up, so I'm really excited about that. 
and of course on Instagram at Amanda Webster Health. Perfect. All right. Well, I will make sure to put that in the show notes so people can find you. Um, Amanda, thank you for coming on. This was definitely a, a vulnerable episode. I mean, that's the name of the podcast, so I would hope it would be. But, uh, you know, you definitely opened up and you shared a lot with us and, and not only in what you shared, but also in what you learned from it. And that's important, too. So, um, again, thank you for coming on. Thank you for opening up. And, uh, yeah, I look forward to staying connected and getting this one released. Thank you so much. All right. Take care and have a great day. You too. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and follow the podcast on Instagram at vulnerable.podcast or on Facebook and LinkedIn. You can also follow me, Brian Almeida, by searching my name on all platforms. If the podcast has impacted you in any way, I would also greatly appreciate a review. Lastly, if you know anyone with a great story of going from struggle to success, I would love to have them on. Thank you and see you next week.